Well, good morning. Woo, good to see you. We have a lot to cover. So the first thing I got to say is this. Before you check my marital status on my Facebook page or tattle to my wife, I forgot my ring today. Just thought I'd let you guys know that. It was on the counter at home, all right? So if everybody's going, when did Lance become single? No, no, no. I just messed that up, all right? So y'all don't need to text Susie and go, hey, I noticed Lance isn't wearing his ring. He's probably going clubbing. You know what I'm saying? Something like that. So anyway, I just, I just forgot it, all right? Here we go. Well, the other things I want to give you an update on is last weekend I had the incredible opportunity to preach on Sunday primarily to both Edge and Fuel, our high school and middle school ministries. We combined them all together. We grabbed about 200 of our kids, put them all into the new space in the basement, and there was a band playing, the video was running. Uh, I got to tell you that watching all those kids worship together was awesome. It was the whole time I was preaching, they were locked in, they were completely respectful, they were fired up for the Lord. After the message, they're coming up to me going, good, good message, pastor. You know, they were doing all that kind of, it was awesome. You would have been so proud of your kids. But I have to tell you this, uh, Eric Upton, the uh, Edge Middle School Ministry pastor, Matt Bach, and Cliff Woodward both do Fuel High School Ministries. I got to tell you, them and their volunteers absolutely top-notch i was man they were so good the way that they keep everything going they had games going let's just thank them they're amazing but it was wonderful last thing i'll say to you is a lot of you came out on friday night to family christian stores to the book signing uh, if you're brand new, I wrote a book about panic attacks, uh, something I've wrestled with since I was six, and it's called How to Live in Fear, Mastering the Art of Freaking Out. And uh, a lot of you came out and, and joined us, and I shared a testimony there that I, I just want to share with you because I want to tell you the power and the reason why I wrote the book. And, and it's going to lead to a real quick announcement, and it's this. I received the most beautiful letter from a man by the name of Gordon from Toronto, Canada. He said, uh, if you never read another letter, read this one, right? So that was his opening. He said, I am 86 years old and I've been dealing with panic disorder for 60 years. He said, and when I read your book, he said, I had tears in my eyes. I've never had anyone talk to me about that that way. He said, um, in 1959, he said, because of what I was going through, nobody understood it. He said, I was put in a clinic they gave me insulin shock treatments and they were going to do a frontal lobotomy. And he said, all my life, it's been misunderstood. And he said, so to have a man of God say, I struggle too, and that I could love God and not have a leader tell me it was my lack of faith, he said, was absolutely stunning. He said, I only got one present for my birthday from my girlfriend, which I just thought was awesome. He had to drop that one in there. You know what I'm saying? And he's like, Ruth only bought me one gift and it was your book and it was the best gift that I could have got. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning all that is if you know someone that's suffering alone or they don't, they don't feel understood or they don't feel heard, they need to get this book. Um, Family Christian was nice enough to put up a bunch of coupons for 20% off and all that stuff. We're going to have them at the, the greeter's desk. But I, I'm so serious about this that if you go, you know what, I do know someone that needs that pastor, but really I don't have the finances right now. I'll go find you one of my copies. 
I'll just get, I'll just give it to you. The whole point is I can't have people for 60 years feel alone. That's unacceptable. And I can't have them pushed off somewhere as if they don't love God. They do love God. So I just want to thank you for all of you that came out. Uh, I mean, we had some folks come and buy them for their whole staff because they said, you know what? This is a beautiful way to minister to my team. So uh, all I'm telling you is it's important that people don't feel alone. Amen. Amen. All right. Praise God. All right, well, why don't you grab your Bibles? We have a lot to cover. Grab your Bibles, take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and we can begin. We are in part six of our fully known series, line by line through the book of Galatians. And I just want to give you the fill in the blank right off the top, because this is the crux of everything that I'm about to say. Fill in this blank. We are children of the King. We are children of the King. When we fall prey to religion and performance-based living, we are spurning our new identity and it simply will not feel right because it's not right. We must remain children of God in our minds and in our hearts. If you are brand new to this series, let me let you know where we're at. Paul the Apostle, one of the greatest evangelists of all time, set up a church in an area of modern-day Turkey called Galatia. And he set up this church and he told them all about Jesus' forgiveness and grace and his love. And they established a Christian church there and everybody was excited. But then some religious folks came in afterwards and they said, that's all good and fine. But if you really want to earn God's love, you got to do some good stuff. You got to do these right things or else God will reject you. That is absolutely unacceptable. Paul went ballistic. So he wrote a letter to them and says, guys, don't you dare fall prey to that stuff. We are not about religion. We are about a relationship with God. He's making that argument. That's where we pick up the story. So we are in Galatians chapter four, verse one. But I want to highlight one verse in chapter three, because it's the premise by which we are launching. I don't know how many of you are here last week, but we had... Uh, our wonderful and amazing Pastor Parnell Lovelace share with us last week. Is he not awesome? Yeah, of course he is. In that message, and I got a chance to be here with you at the 9 o'clock service, and so I was Mr. Amen yelling and all that kind of stuff up in the front row. Uh, but there's one verse that he covered that I need to just read for you. It's in chapter 3, verse 29, because that begins our whole story. It says this, And if you are Christ, meaning his children, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, right off the bat, if you are new to this whole thing, you go, yeah, 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 it's throwing out a bunch of names. Tell me about Jesus. I don't really understand the Abraham thing. To the Jews, Abraham's a huge deal. He is the father of the Jewish people. All Jewish people come from Abraham. As a matter of fact... Abraham's lineage created many large people groups. So a lot of people trace their lineage back to Abraham. So what Paul is telling them is he said, listen, you've all been told that everything's kind of came through Abraham. Well, I'm telling you right now that if you are in Jesus Christ, you are in that family, you're in that line and you get all the privileges and resources of being in the family of God, right? Now he's going to make the argument why. So let's go ahead and pick that up. Chapter four, verse one. We're just going to go, I'm going to read one through three, then we'll back up and tear it apart. All right. 
He said this. He said, what I mean is that the heir, the one who's going to inherit the kingdom from their father, as long as he is a child, well, he's no different than a slave, at least in terms of resources. Though he is the owner of everything, technically on paper, he is still under guardians and managers, people telling him what to do until the date set by his father that he is deemed a man. In the same way, we also, as people in humankind, when we were children, brand new to the interaction with God, still awaiting a savior, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, it starts off a little bit complicated, so I'll tell you this. This message has a lot of material in it. So normally when I'm preaching, there are periodic times when you can just nap. All right. Now there's times you can normally just drift off and then I'll yell and you'll come back awake. Okay. And you'll still be with us. This is not one of those messages. If you miss any part of this, you're going to get totally lost. All right. So I need you to hang in with me because I'm going to be drawing up a whole bunch of different scenarios. Here's all he said. He said this, he said in the same way, a child of the King could have all this stuff inherent in their name. When they don't have access to it, there's no real big point about it. You're just like a servant. A servant doesn't have all the resources. A prince that's too young doesn't have access to the resources. They're similar. He said, in the same way, before we realize our identity with God, we only think we have what this world has to offer. But there's more to it than that. And that's what he wants to argue for. But I do want to say something real quick because I think it's important for us to embrace as our identity. There's a big difference between a slave or a servant and a son. Some of us are still operating in our Christianity as servants of God. And that's all we think we are. Now, don't get me wrong. Being a servant of God is a beautiful part of our identity, but it is not the primary part of our identity. Let me tell you the difference. A slave doesn't have access to resources, but an adult son does. When it talks about us being adopted into the family of God, the phrasing used actually means that we were brought in as an adult child. We do have immediate access to privilege, to resource, to authority, to power. Immediately. A slave or a servant does not have the access to the king that children do. For example, my girls... My daughters know full well that if there's something troubling them in the middle of the night, there is no problem with them coming into our room and saying, mom, dad, can you pray for me? Or something went wrong or what was that noise or whatever. They have 24, seven, 365 day access to their dad. There are still too many of us that are praying and we keep saying the phrase internally, I'm probably bugging God. I'm probably taking him away from something important. Now, y'all know God can multitask, right? He's pretty good at this. He can handle whatever you got. But even if I was in a very important job, my daughter coming up and telling me I'm afraid I will turn from what I'm doing and I will focus on her. She is my primary responsibility. We need to operate 
in our prayer time, in our interaction with God as children, not merely servants. Right? A couple other things that I noticed about this. Sons obey out of love. Slaves obey out of fear or respect. If you're still trying to honor God out of respect and not out of love, we've not yet embraced full Christianity. The other thing, slaves don't have resources. Sons do. And here's the key. Kids have the same nature as their father, but servants don't. Here's what I mean. I don't know if you've seen my daughters. Praise the Lord. They have beauty from their mom, but you know, they're my daughters. I mean, they, uh, my, uh, they look a lot like me, right? Uh, you know who their dad is when you see them. We take on the image of our parents, some to a little degree, some to a lot. Servants were born from different parents. So no matter how close they are to the king, they don't look like the king. Kids do. Here's what I'm going to point out. I think we are operating as Christians with our heads down and our shoulders down and we're walking with insecurity and I don't believe that's appropriate. I believe that the angels and demons are seeing something you're not seeing. I think they know the Holy Spirit's in you. I think they're rattled by that. I think the whole idea, they realize if they mess with you, they're messing with a king and they're scared of him. And therefore, I believe that if we truly knew that we look like our dad, that we truly knew that his image is upon us, if we truly believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within, if we truly believe that we had the power and the authority of God as princes and princesses of the kingdom, we would walk with our head high, our shoulders back, and with confidence. Amen? Amen. Amen. We got to own this, right? Because that is real. It doesn't matter whether you feel like it or not. It is the reality of your identity. It is not because you're cool. It's because God is amazing. It is not because you did something great. It's because he is great and he did something amazing, right? All right. So that's why we have confidence. Let's, let's keep moving forward. It says this in verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, meaning everything was ready, God sent forth his son. Now you have to understand, son does not mean a smaller version of in this account. It means an emanating from. So God became flesh and dwelt among us. God sent forth his son. We know him to be Jesus Christ. He is the second person of the Trinity, eternally God. He comes into our race, born of a woman, meaning fully God, fully man, born under the law as a Jew. Why? Verse five, to redeem, to buy back at a price, to set free those who are under the Jewish religious system of the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as adult sons. Okay, a couple things you need to know about that. First of all, ladies, I know this is frustrating for you. You've had to do this your whole life. So let me remind you of the irritation you follow. Whenever you're in church, the Bible always ends up talking about dudes. I know that. And so you always have to play the mental game and go, and the daughters, right? But here's what I need you to do. I need you to realize that when I say that we are sons of God, I need you to accept that title. I don't want you to put and daughters of God. 
Here's why. Because if we're going to get into the context of the author, daughters in that day did not have the same rights as sons. So for you to claim a lesser status of that day is not appropriate for you. The Bible says there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Therefore, all of us are equal in the eyes of God. So when he says that you in ancient culture have the authority of an adult son, that is for the ladies in the room just as much as the men. Right? All right. So amen. Praise God. Now, so you don't need to do that mental gymnastic. Just receive in that you are sons of God in that way, in that authority. All right. The other thing that we need to realize is that when we are adopted by God, we are in a sense taken out of where we were at and put into a new family and we have to get used to our new identity. But we're also brought into his family in a very deep supernatural way. The Bible says that we are born again. Why is it necessary to be born again? So that you might have a place for the Holy Spirit to dwell. That we are born again so we look more and more like the Father. That we are born again so we would more and more inhabit God and be partakers of the divine nature, the Bible says. So not only did he scoop us in, he transformed us so that we are rebuilt from the inside out. We are now no longer merely human. We are now partakers of the divine nature. So these are all the things we got to lock into our hearts when you walk around. When you go into Walmart, you're a child of God. When you go into Target, you're a child of God. You understand what I'm saying? It's not like that only happens when you're in a spiritual environment. It means that when you're at home, you're a child of God. When you're at work, you're a child of God. When you're at play, you're a child of God. We just need to know that's who we are. We don't put it on and take it off. It is the nature of who we are. Yeah? Okay, I'm going to work myself into a sweat here. This is good. All right, here we go. Verse 6. I'm learning from Pastor Parnell. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Need my towel. Here we go. Verse six. And because you are sons, legitimately and really, God has sent the Holy Spirit of his son into our hearts, the very core of who we are, crying out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, a personal and intimate connection. So you are no longer a slave, distant and different, but you are a son who is near and image-bearing. And if you are a son of God, then you are an heir with rights, privileges, and resources through God. All right, praise God, that's good. The Holy Spirit, you know what happened on Pentecost? I mean, this is craziness. I feel like if we just camped on the concept of Pentecost for a whole year, we'd only then begin to start getting it. Because what happened there was extraordinary. On that day, God himself indwelt mankind and camped there. Before the Father spoke to man, before the Son walked with man, now the Holy Spirit dwells within man. And so all of a sudden, it it took these, these men who were followers and disciples of Jesus, hiding in a room for fear of the authorities, with a locked door, when the Holy Spirit goes in them and hits them, they unlock the door and go out and transform the world. 
Why? Because the Holy Spirit is inside. And if the Holy Spirit's inside, there's nothing God can't do through us, right? All right, all right. Verse 8. Now, formerly, beforehand, when you didn't know God, and I don't know what you want to call that. What do you, what do you want to call it? When, like an unbeliever, non-believer, pagan? What do you want to call you? I don't know. I don't know what that is. I think I was called five years old. <laughs> okay, anyway. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Okay, weird phrase, simple concept. Before you knew the truth of God, other forces, principles, and people pushed you around. That's all it means. It means that you lived according to what you heard, what your parents taught you, what your friends said, everything else in advertising, stuff like that. Everything shaped and told you how much you were worth and what your value was. Verse nine, but now that you have come to know God, that he is real and that he's here, or rather more accurately, you have been known by God because he had to reveal himself to you. You were never going to find him. How in the world, Paul said, can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? That religious system, why would you do that? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. What, what are you doing it for? Are you doing it to be religious that you're going to somehow earn righteousness? I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Okay, a couple things about that. In Paul's opinion... We begin with rules and regulations before we know God. We hear about the fact that there is right and wrong. There's moral and immoral. There's good and bad. We hear about the Ten Commandments. We hear about the regulations, that there's things that God is disappointed with and things that God loves. We know all that, but Christianity takes us and advances us to a new place where we know the heart of God, not just the rules of God. Paul said, why in the world would we want to go backwards? Why do we want to slip back into a religious system where we back up from God and become more immature? Why wouldn't we want to lean in and embrace the nature of God and his grace and his forgiveness? You understand what I mean? So he said, why would you go back to that? I don't understand. Maybe I've even labored over you in vain. You're still worried about celebrating months and days and years and worried about festivals and worried about ritual, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with having an honoring to the Lord with a Sabbath concept. There's nothing wrong with having a festival, a Passover, Seder, all these amazing things. But there's two challenges with this concept. Number one, what's your motivation for doing it? Are you thinking that you're going to put more on your good side of the scale so that you can convince God you're a good person? Are you still trying to earn righteousness? Are you still trying to earn his good grace? Are you still trying to get him to pay attention to you? Why are you doing the good stuff you do? You always got to check motive. Are you doing devotions because you feel like if you do enough of them, God will answer more prayers? You know what I'm saying? Is God really a vending machine? Right? You put in enough coins, he'll give you what you want. If he doesn't give you what you want, you must have screwed up somehow. Isn't that what we still keep playing? This magical thinking, this superstition, this... It's wrong. It's not right. 
The other thing that he seems to be suggesting is, hey, guys, why do we keep celebrating festivals about a coming Messiah when he showed up already? That's weird. We don't need to celebrate. Oh, someday. We're... No, no, no. He came. So how about we let that one go and let's celebrate something else. That would be awesome. Right. Look at verse 12. Brothers. Notice he's not saying you guys lost your salvation. Everything's wrong with you. You're all going to hell. He didn't say any of that. Brothers, saved ones, my family, I'm begging you. I entreat you. You got to become as I am, which is free in Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I became as you are. I stepped out of my whole Jewish box, my Orthodox Judaism. I stepped into this idea of Jesus. I became a practical religious Gentile. So I came into your camp. I need you to make an adjustment and come into my camp. But I need to be very clear, guys. You did me no wrong. Notice that phrase. I'm not mad at you personally. I'm just freaked out for you. I feel like you're going backwards. You didn't hurt me personally. You know full well, verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you in the first place. I was not even headed your direction until I got derailed and detoured to go into your area. If my body would not have failed me, if I would have not had such a significant trial and challenge, I would have never set you up as a church in the first place. But the problem of that was, verse 14, my condition was a trial to you. I put you out. I walk in, I got all these issues. You're like, what, you're here to help us? Man, dude, you need a bed. Something's wrong with you. You look funky, you're all messed up. My condition was a trial to you, but you did not scorn. You did not push me away. You did not despise me. You actually received me like an angel, a holy messenger of God. And it's Christ Jesus himself. So what became of your blessedness? Where where did that relationship go? You guys were fully in. Oh, Paul, you're one of us. And now what? These new guys come in and suddenly you're not listening to me anymore. Don't you remember how you acted toward me? I testify to you that if possible at that time, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Okay, I don't, I don't know if many of you know any of the story about what scholars think about this whole thing. Nobody knows what was wrong with Paul. Some people guess malaria because the area he deviated from was a malaria area and he had to go up into highlands. They don't know whether or not it was bad eyesight. He talks about when I write, I write in big letters and maybe the referring to eyes. Some people believe it was a thorn in his flesh. Who knows? But the bottom line was, he said, man, I came in messed up and you guys loved on me. We did great things together. What happened to that? Verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, those false teachers... Oh, they're focused on you. They make all kinds of things about you. They make much of you, but it's not for a good purpose. They want to shut you out of blessing. Don't you understand that even if you do it their route, you're only going to be second-class citizens. Guys, you're Gentiles. In their religious system, you'll never be as good as a legitimate Jew. I just need you to know that. That's not right. They want you to make much of them. They want to look better. They want to be right. Now, it's fine to be made much of for a good purpose. Guys, I'm focused on you for all the right reasons. There's nothing wrong with that. And I don't want to do it just now, not only when I'm present with you. Verse 19, my little children. Paul says that nowhere else in his letters. This is a term of endearment. 
my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm totally confused about you. Now, not many guys use childbirth references. That's weird. But he's like, man, I'm stressing and I'm straining and I'm hoping that it's all going to go right. It was, I felt that way when I first led you guys to the Lord. I feel that same way right now. I feel like you're slipping backwards and you're not listening to me. Look at verse 21. He said, all right, let me talk to the bad guys for a moment. Let me, whoever will listen, tell me, you answer me this. You who desire to be under the law, the religious legalism. Do you not listen to all the law? You want to play law games. You do realize I'm a Pharisee. You do realize I'm brilliant at this stuff. So you're going to argue with me that I should go backwards. I'm not going backwards. Do you not listen to the law? It is written in Genesis 16 through 21 that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. One by a slave woman named Hagar, worst name for a woman ever. And one by a free woman named Sarah. But the son of the slave, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, Isaac, was born through a promise. You go, huh? Okay, let me tell you the story. Maybe not all of you are Old Testament scholars, all right? So let me tell you the story. At 75 years old, God comes to a guy named Abraham that doesn't really have a clue, reveals himself to him, and he says, hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation of people that are mine. I'm going to tell the whole world what I'm like through you and all nations on earth will be blessed. Are you in for that? Yes, sir, I am. All right. I need you to leave everything you know, all your comforts, all your wealth, all your family attachments. And I'm going to go lead you to somewhere that you don't know where you're going. Why? Because I'm going to force you to trust me. You can't just do lip service. You got to act it out. So I want you to walk with me. Right. I'm going to create in you a massive people group well now automatically he looks over to his wife and he's like dang all right we better get busy this is awesome and she's going uh i'm a little older i'm not sure if you've noticed that buddy right and we haven't had kids yet so i'm not sure this is really going to work out they try for 10 years nothing okay i don't know how long you've been praying for something but most of us we're like lord if you don't answer by tuesday you don't exist right? God, why? You know, I mean, it's, he's like, you're praying for a parking space. What's wrong with you? Yeah. 10 years, nothing. So they start getting creative. Hey, you know what we could do is we could help God figure this out because God is so bad at his own plans, right? So they're going to help him out. She says, you know what? I actually have a slave woman, a, a maidservant that helps me out. You could marry her too. And then technically, because she's my slave, any kids she has are technically mine. So let's go ahead and do that. And let's help God out because obviously God didn't recognize I'm infertile. So we're going to go ahead and help this out. So Abraham said, okay, we'll do that. Immediately, Hagar becomes pregnant because remember, she's not barren. Sarah's barren. Well, right off the bat, the women hate each other's guts. Right off the bat, the one's going, so you've been treating me like a slave all this time, huh? Oh, guess who's pregnant and guess who's not? Oh, look, that would be me and not you. Automatically turmoil in the house. Now, if you thought that it was hard enough to work your marriage with one spouse, 
it is way harder with two in the household that hate each other. All right. This is massive dysfunction. Okay. Well, sure enough, she has a boy and his name is Ishmael. Now, during this whole time and everything, Sarah was so nasty and mean to Hagar, she ran away and God made her go back. And he's like, I see you. I'll take care of you. I get it. You're in a bad situation. I need you to go back because we have a story to tell. So she goes back in and has to deal with all this grief. Well, her boy is getting older and older. 25 years after the promise. Remember, you're still waiting for a kid. 25 years later, God comes back in and says, hey, that kid thing, you know that's still legit, right? Well, now Abraham's turning 100 years old. And he's like, whatever. I don't even care anymore. And Sarah's like, that better not be legit. <laughs> okay. If I was uncomfortable before. And they have a child, a miraculous child, a child they name Laughter. Because when, when Sarah first heard about it, she was like, yeah, right. Like that's going to happen. Right. And God's like, yeah, we'll name your kid that. Okay. And they have this promised miracle baby. Well, that's pretty shocking, right? Well, now all of a sudden you have this tension where there's two boys in the house. Now you've got a 14 year old boy who's always been his dad's pride and joy. And now there's this miracle baby in the house. Well, at about three years old, Ishmael's now 17. At three years old, they have a weaning party. Have you ever had a weaning party? Is that not weird? Was I not invited to your weaning party? I don't even know what the cake looks like for that. I don't even know. What do you, what do you do? Right? It's a weaning party. All right. Well, so they have a weaning party and at the weaning party, the 17 year old starts making fun of and mocking and messing with the three year old. Well, that rises up the mama bear and Sarah. And she's like, heck no, this is not going to happen. You got to get that woman out of here with her kid. She lays on uh, Abraham to do it. And he's all sad because that was also his son. He's like, all right, you guys got to go. And he kicks him out. All right. That's the story. Okay, cool. All right. This Paul says, yeah, yeah, yeah. That story. That's what I'm talking about. Look at verse 24. Now, this story in Genesis, you just heard, may be interpreted allegorically. These women, Hagar and Sarah, are like two contracts or two covenants with God. One, the slave woman, Hagar, is from Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. Bearing children in slavery of slave woman can only have slave children. She is Hagar, the servant lady. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present day religiosity of Jude Judaism in Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. Okay, here's all he meant. Man, let's just picture those two ladies as two different ways of interacting with God. One is a slave lady that is constantly only having slaves that is trapped into legalism and religious systems. On the other hand, and that's what's going on in Jerusalem. On the other hand, verse 26, but the Jerusalem from above, the Jerusalem of heaven, the place where Jesus dwells, is free. She is our mother. That's the Sarah side. Verse 27, for it is written in Isaiah, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. All he said was, just because you think everything is over, it's not over. God can bring blessing into your life. 
He said, let me continue. Verse 28. Now you brothers, Galatians, like Isaac, are children of promise. You're miracle babies made by God, called by God. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted the promised baby who was born according to the spirit. So right now, persecution is happening. These religious guys are coming in and picking on you, the little miracle babies. So what does the scripture say in Genesis in verse 30? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free. Get them out. What does all that mean? Real simple. We cannot allow two identities to fuse in us and do kind of religion and kind of Christianity. We got to get all the religious legalism out. It's got to be Jesus plus nothing. So get them out. Take on your identity as children of God, rescued by faith and grace alone. Don't play those games. Don't go backwards. Don't backslide into this hole. I got to earn my way. I got to earn my way. I got to earn his love. I got to do something for God. If I do anything bad, he's going to condemn me to hell. And I hold on. You're a child of God. Your sin is not a surprise to him. Therefore, when you sin, you are just doing what you did when he saved you. If he saved you in a bad place, he can keep rescuing you in a bad place. Now, should you continue in sin then? No, it defies your new identity. God knows that, but it's robbing you. That's why God doesn't like it. God isn't rattled by it. God isn't going, oh, that's sin. Oh, that's so horrifying. I can't look that way. Oh, it's terrible. God's going, my kids are broken, but I will make them whole. I'm not done with them. They're in process. So I'm working on them and they're going to be beautiful. He loves you now and he loves you to tomorrow and he loves you when you screw up and he loves you when you're righteous. Just understand that our attempts to try to earn God's love are foolish. I would be so sad. And I tell you this a lot. I would be so sad if my Youngest daughter, Andy, came to me and said, Dad, would you please love me? Would you please love me? Would you please love me? That would be an insult to me. Honey, what more do I need to do to convince you that your daddy loves you? Isn't that how God feels about some of us? Are all your prayers still about how wicked and terrible you are? And God, would you please love me in my sin? Can you not receive his word of God? That says, for now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, you guys, our sin matters and we got we to gotta deal with trying to bring ourselves in alignment with identity. But it doesn't take away his love. It doesn't change us from being children of God. We got to get our heads wrapped around this in a different way. Okay, I'll close with this thought. We have to determine to be free. When it comes to religious matters, when it comes to our faith... We cannot be driven by fear. We must be driven by faith. We need to listen to God, not the shouts of religion. 
Because it's very scary when you hear a bunch of opinions all over the place telling you what God thinks about you. We must remember this. Christianity is not a system. It's a someone. You got that? It is not religion, but relationship, yeah? So as long as we're still acting like servant kids, as long as we're still acting distant, as long as we're still doing our prayers through a religious ritual route, hoping to utilize the system rightly, we've missed Christianity. Only when we begin to look up to our Heavenly Father and say, Dad, I don't know what in the world I'm doing, but I thank you that you love me. Then we got it. Amen? Let me have the prayer team come on up here as we close. I want to remind everyone that just because the service ends, ministry doesn't end. We have a prayer team that is coming on up and they have been prayed over and anointed that they might be God's liaison by which to just keep going. So if God has stirred anything up in your heart that you need to leave baggage here and not take it to your car, you need to be praying with them. What the Holy Spirit does is he puts little markers out in you and he goes, yeah, that thing that pastor was talking about, yeah, that's you. Can you go clear that up real quick with me before you go home? That's why the prayer team is here. I want you to take full advantage of them. They are here to listen. They're here to love on you. They're here to pray. They're not counselors. They're prayers. Pour your heart out before God. They're bound by confidentiality. All right? And let me just say this. If you're brand new to this church, I'm going to go up to room one. I would love to meet you. Bring that card with you. If you and you've been around here a little while, but you never got a chance to meet me. I'd love to just hang with you for a little bit. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You're a good, good Father. You're the one that has patience for us and kindness for us. You're the one that rescued us. Lord, we keep getting wrapped up in the idea of how good we can get. And I think that's just the wrong way. Lord, you're the one that brings the good. We want to do all that we do because we're already children of God. Look, Jesus, if we trust in you, you said you would make us new. If we throw all our sin down before you, you said that you would cleanse us. If we own up to who we are right now, you said you would make us different. So we release all of it into your hands. And we say yes to your priorities, yes to your agenda, yes to your way and will. And we just ask, Holy Spirit, would you move in this place in a mighty way and shake off all the garbage and baggage of our lives? Reveal more and more and chisel out of the marble an image of you, Jesus, in our hearts, in our lives. Release us from all these things that chase after us. Meet us at the prayer place. Meet us at this altar, God, that we might be set free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend.